Oh, hey, Pam, I got a question for you. What's up? Uh, it's the funniest thing. Whenever I record Gaming Street Regulars with Chrissy, I feel like my normal self. Whenever I'm doing Nerd World News for the Flower City Comic Con folks, I feel like my normal self. But when I'm here, something's different. I mean, I feel all right, and yet I, I, I can't put my finger on... Why does my finger have a claw? Oh, because you're a raccoon now. Get me a mirror. Here you go. Okay, I can live with the raccoon part, but why am I dark blue? Because you're blue, da ba dee ba da doo da da ba dee da ba doo I should smack you. Aw, <laughs> oh, but then I'll have the blues. But you've already got the blues. Oh god, it's contagious. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello out there in podcast land. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. And welcome to this latest episode of the Pemmy and James Kind of Sorta Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. And today we're looking at our first series of theatrical shorts, which is really exciting for me because th this is where a lot of my animation nostalgia lies. The Pink Panther? Well, well not just, just the Pink Panther, but just, you know, the theatrical cartoons in general from... From Warner, from MGM, from DePatty Freeling, from Disney, from even Universal and Paramount. Just the condensed, short, tight-as-a-drum comedy. I I watched a lot of theatrical cartoons growing up, too, but I, I've always had a stronger connection to TV animation for the most part. I think it's mostly because... I know these uh, theatrical cartoons had a lot of huger, bigger budgets, while TV cartoons had to do the best they could with what little they have, and for some reason I just find that more fascinating. But I do have love theatrical cartoons quite a bit. I mean, we wouldn't have cartoons at all if they did not exist. Oh, and, and don't get me wrong, I love a lot of the television stuff too. That was an equal part of my animation diet growing up, and still is. And let's face it, a lot of the most popular requests we're going to be getting, and have already gotten, have been the televised stuff. Especially since a lot of the FC3 board grew up in the 80s and want to talk about your G.I. Joes, your Transformers, your Gem and the Holograms, and so on and so forth. And rest assured, those are coming. Ah, oh, the 80s. We got a toy line, let's make a cartoon show. Pretty much. But, as Pemmy already alluded to, our subject today is the Pink Panther. Co-created by Fritz Freeling. Mm -hmm. I think it's just cool that, I, that we managed to sneak in some Henry Mancini on this podcast. <laughs> well, I guess technically it wasn't co-created by uh, Fritz Freeling, as it says in the intro. It's The character itself was created by, I think it was Blake Edwards, but Fritz Freeling is 
responsible for directing the shorts and as well as the company that, you know, made them. That's right. It, it, it all actually kind of started innocently enough. Friz Freeling and David DePatty. Am I pronouncing that right? I think so. Okay, well, hopefully somebody out there in listener land will correct us if I'm not. Anyhow, they had just founded a company bearing their names in 1963 for the purpose of making commercials after the Warner Brothers animation team was cut loose from the studio. But director Blake Edwards, however, approached them with the need for a design for a cartoon character to visually represent the titular diamond of a United Artists movie starring David Niven and Peter Sellers. Add in that music you just heard from Henry Mancini, and suddenly the team had a legitimate star on their hands that they never anticipated. The Pink Panther. Yep, (laughs) that's okay. The following year, our first short subject debuted, The Pink Fink, which was storyboarded and written by John W. Dunn and had additional music cues based on the Mancini theme by William Lava. And it won the Academy Award for the Best Animated Short Subject. This will be the studio's lone Oscar win. It's worth uh, mentioning that for those who may not know, uh, Fritz Freeling was, uh, before creating his own company, and as we mentioned earlier, was let loose from Warner. He is responsible for creating a lot of characters at Warner, such as Sylvester the Cat and Yosemite Sam. And Speedy Gonzalez. Yeah. Heck, Yosemite Sam is supposedly based on Fritz Freeling, which is something even he himself mentioned. In fact, he claims that's the reason why he writes them better than anybody else. That <laughs> makes sense. I mean, you write what you know, and what do you know better than yourself? Because seemingly Fritz Freeling was short, uh, I think Texan, and had like a very short temper and lots of red hair. He used to have a beard. so And a mustache. Yeah. I, I love how Yosemite Sam's face morphs, though, from, like, early drawings to, like, later Looney Tunes, where his face is practically just eyebrows, a mustache, and beard. It's, like, consumed his entire face. <laughs> but that's getting off subject. Oh, no, no, that's actually perfectly on subject, because Freeling was responsible for one of Warner's uh, few Academy Awards as well for their animation department for Nighty Night Bugs. So he was arguably one of their one of that studio's biggest breadwinners in terms of the short subjects. And when you consider he was working alongside giants like Chuck Jones and Bob McKimson, that's saying something. Yep, he is and uh Bob Clampett too, also. Oh yes, yes, although although Clampett was long gone by the time uh, they won the Oscar. True. Which I've heard some mixed opinions on Clampett through people, but that's beside the point. Also, Tex Avery used to be at Warner at one point. Oh, yes, yes. And, and rest assured, all of those guys will be coming up in the future as well. Don't you love how I keep giving us more work? <laughs> I also want to mention, though, before doing these Pink Panther shorts, they also uh, were contracted and outsourced to do uh, some more Warner Brothers cartoons before that. I mainly want to mention that because uh, this first short, The Pink Fink, is animated way better than any of the the Patty Freeling, like, Warner Brothers, like, Looney Tunes cartoons they did after being let go from Warner. Oh, no kidding. That Probably because uh, United Artists gave to Patty Freeling Enterprises a much bigger budget. 
Yeah, because the uh, those Warner cartoons, those Looney Tunes cartoons they did uh, in like I think it's the sixties, uh, like late fifties, early sixties, somewhere around there. <laughs> they barely look better than TV budget animation. Yeah, just barely. It it, it looks like high end Hanna Barbera. Also, Speedy Gonzales and Daffy Duck was still a weird team up. It it just doesn't mesh. Daffy doesn't have very much to gain from pursuing Speedy, I don't think. They usually just set it up as Speedy annoys him somehow, and it's usually, like, the sometimes just the lamest of things. It's like, Speedy's playing that music I don't like. I hate him. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> Seems over the top, but okay. Yes. I, I think this short they made through that era that I remember the most was they did a Roadrunner short where like Wiley Coyote makes a makes a coyote mech. <laughs> right. Yeah. Those shorts are probably not going to be something we do in the near future. We're probably looking three, four years down the line for the DePatty Freeling era of Looney Tunes. Uh no, not looking forward to that. Those there's a few I'd say not gems, but Shiny pieces, I'll put it that way, but most of them are pretty bad. Yeah, and and we have enough bad stuff to look at from other companies on, on our growing list. Yes, although we have some good filmation coming up in the near future too, but we'll get to that at the ad break. Filmation is not even the worst company that we can review, to be honest. They're just the... they're. I, I kind of phrase it as they're the company I kind of love to hate on, but I still love them, so... Right. But that's beside the point. Uh, the first one, we, uh, the first short that we were going to talk about, The Pink Fink. Yes, arguably the most minimalist of the early Pink Panther shorts. But of the ones we watched, it actually seems like the best animated, too. Very true, very true. The plot here is uh, simple. We, it's basically the Pink Panther is uh, walking by and uh, in a house, and he encounters the Little Man. This Little Man never gets a name throughout the duration of the series. But, you know, when doing my research, I realized that Freeling did it again. Because the little man is short, mustached, easily flustered, and hot-tempered. It's another Frizz Freeling XP. Well, you know, you gotta put yourself in your work, I guess. Yep, like I said, write what you know. The animation in this is really smooth, though, despite the minimalistic uh, style of it. Um, which, i that's one of the things I kind of like in a lot of these, uh, th- these uh, Depatty Freeling uh, early theatrical eras, there's a very minimalistic, surreal kind of art style to it, and it, it looks very stylish and very neat. Mm-hmm. The The minimalism actually lends itself well to the story because this is a painting gag cartoon. Now, you probably are familiar with you out there in listener land would probably recognize this sort of format Character A wants to paint something one color. Character B wants to paint it the other. Hijinks ensue. You know, we've we've seen this a few other places, I'm sure. Yeah, but uh, the gags they do on this one is quite 
good and quite creative. I, I like some of the simple things, like how he it takes him so long before he even sees the Pink Panther himself. And he goes to the point where he thought it was a mouse at one point. Yes, yes, that's actually one of the one of my favorite leads to one of my favorite gags with with the giant mouse trap. <laughs> because not only you know you expect the little man to get caught in his own trap, and he does. But they don't just leave the gag there. They show a mouse actually coming to claim the cheese after the trap has been sprung. Yeah. Which is a touch. I don't think a lot of other studios, like, say, famous studios, would have come up with. No, and then they did that on a, uh, another one of the shorts, did a similar thing that we see later, but I'll, I'll point that out later. But yeah, it's, it's really good. It's like you think you've seen the gag, but then at the last minute they stick something else to it to, to just add to the humor. See, but yeah, there's a lot of really just good creative uh, gags in this. See, gosh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, and I, as soon as he like, when uh, the, the panther hides against the pink wall and he mm-hmm. touches him and he laughs, it was like, I instantly was like, oh, hey, it's Mel Blank. <laughs> yeah, a very brief cameo from Mel. It's like, which I was kind of surprised by. I, I, I was like, I know that's Mel's laugh, but I still went and looked it up and double checked because I was like, I'm kind of surprised they hired Mel Blank just to do one sound for this. But all right. But uh, I guess this is when his exclusivity contract with Warner ended. So, yeah, after that, because I think he had already started doing the Flintstones, yeah, just a couple years prior. See, because I know for a long time he had an exclusivity contract where he could only do stuff for Warner, which is why he was uh, Woody Woodpecker for like the first few shorts and then stopped. Was because of that. So we can go blow for blow with these gags, but. Honestly, you know, it's not like we're describing an action-adventure cartoon. You know, visual gags are more funny seen than described. Yeah, but there's still a lot of good ones, like uh, fil- the filling the gun. <laughs> when he goes to try to shoot, like, when he finds out it's a Pink Panther and he tries to shoot him, and Pink Panther fills the gun up with pink paint and ends up painting the entire house pink on accident was really clever. Or when it's he a tried, bit of escalation, yes. Or when he gets frustrated and tries, he buries all of the pink paint to try to get rid of it, and it somehow like just makes every single plant in the yard pink, and even the sun. <laughs> yeah, that that was a good capper. I actually did not see that level of escalation coming uh, for for uh, this premise of of a cartoon. And it's and it is entertaining watching the little man increasingly lose his temper. I was especially impressed with the animation of him bouncing up and down the stairs with the blue footprints <laughs> af- after the panther had poured the pink paint down the stairs and somehow managed to get it to coat perfectly the first try. Which reminds me of a, one uh, artistic thing I like about this is whenever he. Every time they paint anything, like when the little man would paint something blue, it looks like actual paint, like like a painted wall, because you could actually still see kind of the white underneath it, barely. But somehow they did it, and they managed to keep it consistent. It doesn't look like it's like jittering around or being done different. So that was actually pretty impressive on their part. And even better, when they're painting the two halves of the one wall, like the little man is doing the upper half and the panther is doing the bottom when they go back and paint over each other's work, you see the little flecks of the other color underneath. Yeah. Which is really nice. 
what they most likely did is they probably painted they painted it on an undersell and just kind of kept it consistent with the animation on top of it. But it's still a really neat effect. It's something that a lot of people probably wouldn't notice, but I, I'm an artist, so of course I'm going to see that and go, oh, hey, that's amazing. And and that's why I'm very glad you're here, because I wouldn't have even thought of that. Um, but being that these are theatrical shorts, they're also, well, short. So is there anything else we have to say about this one, or should we go to the next one? Not really. I think we can move on to to num- to our second episode, or rather, uh, release, which is the fourth in the production chronology. And I picked this one because for a couple reasons. It's Dial P for Pink. And the music in this one is the first time they use significant music cues outside of the Henry Mancini theme. In fact, it's a theme song that would be used for the Inspector shorts. Yes, that's absolutely right. It's originally from another Blake Edwards film, A Shot in the Dark. Which also had Clouseau in it. Naturally. And of course, the Inspector is inspired by Clouseau's character from the Pink Panther films, Shot in the Dark, and so on and so forth. Uh, Also, uh, Shot in the Dark's credit sequence has a special cameo of the brothers Mozzarelli who would later become villains in the first inspector short and then later would get their own segment on the super, the super six TV show, which is weird. <laughs> well, sometimes beginnings are humble. Look at Harley Quinn. This is true. Or Snagglepuss for that matter. Exit stage, right? Stage left. Even. Yeah. He just started as a reoccurring character on Snooper and Blabber. Was it Super and Blabber, or was it... Or, or I could swore for some reason he appeared on Quick Draw McGraw first, but anyway. Might have been both. Yeah. I mean, they were part of the same anthology series, so... True. And then he'd become pink. Because <laughs> yeah. in those, if I remember right, he wasn't pink, he was just a lion. Right. But uh, Dal P for pink, my biggest question throughout this entire thing is, why is Pink Panther in a safe? <laughs> it is a fair question, but this is the short where I think they started really hitting the madcap energy of Panther versus an outside antagonist just right. I mean, as artistically accomplished as as the Pink Fink was, you know, we, we'd seen painter gags before. This, this one feels just a little... It's got that little je ne sais quoi to it that makes it feel like they finally perfected the formula i also noticed uh in one different thing that this and the other two shorts we watched uh had in comparison to the pink fink is uh they started coloring using a pink outline for uh for his for uh, pink panther's line art at this point instead of using a black outline like they did in the pink fink and then in layer shorts they'll go back to using the black outline probably just because it was easier i assume okay so in the, the opening, we establish very quickly that there is a thief after something in this safe, and this thief has the worst luck I have seen in some time. I mean, not the worst luck ever. I mean, that's Charlie Brown, of course. But uh, I don't when, know, like, Donald Duck. Yeah, he he got stuck with all the bad luck. No one but Donald Duck. <laughs> I think he might out 
outweigh uh, Charlie Brown just on the fact that most of Charlie Brown's like bad luck doesn't physically harm him. <laughs> most. Donald Not is almost football. all physical harm. <laughs> and mental. But Yeah. As for this thief, when your first impression of him is him being choked by the window he just opened slamming shut on him, it's... You know this guy's in for a hard time. I, I like a lot of the gags in this one. Like, whenever he tries to uh, turn the knob on the uh, safe and it, it turns on the radio, that was pretty funny. I, I, I did not see that coming, and I laughed out very loud when I first saw this. And then there's a bit of extended business where the Pink Panther keeps changing the lock on the safe, and the burglar tries to... Uh, Buy it, buy keys to get at it. First key yeah. is too is too small for the second lock, and then the burglar runs back, comes up with a chain of keys, thinks better of it, and grabs a a gigantic key. And then there's another dial on the safe. Uh, see, I I just want to know what what key store can you go to that just randomly has keys for every single lock available? I mean, that's. That's kind of crazy. And on top of that, they didn't ask any questions about why the guy was dressed with a handkerchief around his face. Or why does he need this lock for this specific safe or building? Yeah, that is admittedly one of the, the drawbacks of the short subject format. You you kind of have to set aside some of those questions to get to the gags. I, I have a lot of questions about this key store. Not only... You know, it had miraculously having all the keys needed for these locks, but also being open at this late at night. Mm-hmm. Seems kind of sketchy. Yeah. Although maybe that's part of the point. Maybe, maybe it's sketchy enough they wouldn't care who's buying and they wouldn't ask about the handkerchief the guy was wearing across his mouth. Or maybe... Just maybe this is such a sketchy neighborhood that the reason the Pink Panther is living inside of a safe is it's just the cheapest rent he could get. That could be it. Or it's just a reference to the fact that it the gym's name is the Pink Panther in the uh, movies. Yeah, but it's the end gag I really want. The end gags, rather, I really want to give some focus on. the The first part of the conclusion begins with. The, one of the biggest defying of physics I had seen in a theatrical short, and I've seen every Roadrunner cartoon. <laughs> because our criminal decides he's going to take the safe away by balloon, and not just simply attaching a bunch of balloons to the safe and carting it away up style. He inflates a balloon inside the safe. Doesn't even do it with any helium, just his own lung power. And this makes the safe somehow lighter than air. Well, what can you say? This uh, thief is obviously full of hot air. Well, probably. And a lot of other stuff, too. But uh, (laughs) Mama said, if you can't say anything nice... I I do have to say the gag of him walking around with the safe like like it's a kid with a balloon was a... Is a is a really funny sight gag, especially when you have that one random guy who's just on the street corner, like what? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's the darndest thing. I watched this thing today, and I already can't remember how the Panther extricated himself from this thing. 
Oh, uh, let's see. Well, he pops the balloon and it lands on the thief. And then he decides to just give the thief the safe. And the thief is like, wait a second. He probably put a bomb in here and tries to give it back. And then whenever the panther takes it back, he's like, no, wait, there must be money in it. So he takes it and, well, boom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that part I did remember because it's like the thief basically manages to con himself <laughs> in that regard. It's like he had the right idea the first time, but his greed got the better of him. <laughs> It's a nice explosion, too, because it's just he runs into the background. And you just get a nice, like, light up in the background for it. It's very nice. Yes. Anything else you wanted to mention about Dial P for Pink? Uh, Pink Panther gives us a nice little eyebrow waggle at the end of that. But other than that, not much else. Yeah, it's some some good explosion gags, some good other gags, and... And, the, and like we said, the first use of the music that would go on to play a large role in a lot of other cartoons. Yeah, it becomes pretty much the, the theme for the Inspector shorts. And at this moment, we are going to pause for promotional consideration, I guess is the phrase I'm looking for. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. On the next Pemmy and James podcast... The voyages of the USS Enterprise didn't end when CBS canceled Star Trek. Filmation reunited the majority of the original cast and several writers of the series to continue boldly going where no man has gone before. We'll discuss the results of episodes, one original to the cartoon and one a sequel to a live-action favorite, in two weeks' time. Three to beam up, Mr. Scott. Welcome back, everybody. And we are off to... The zoo, or rather, off to the jungle for our next cartoon. Welcome to the jungle! We play fun games. Ooh. <laughs> oh, dear. Let's see. So this is actually the first Pink Panther cartoon to feature significant spoken dialogue. Sink Pink. It feels really weird hearing a character talk a lot in these shorts. Yeah, but mercifully, this character's voice is supplied by voice acting veteran Paul Freeze. Of course he is. <laughs> I love Paul Freeze. Animation fanatics would know this guy but pretty well, but for those who might not, he's most famous for Boris Badenov in the Rocking Bullwinkle cartoons. Disney's Professor Ludwig von Drake from some of their televised animations. And if you're a Disney theme park nutcase like I am, you'd know him as the Haunted Mansion's ghost host. Good heavens! Boris, you said heavens. Well, of course, they won't let me they won't let me advertise a competitor. <laughs> God, I love Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm planning on, on doing a two-parter on Rocky and Bullwinkle around uh, your birthday next year. That's going to be a weird one because that would require us to watch like a whole like story arc or two. Potentially, I, I'm thinking we'll, we'll get we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Right now, right. we are uh, we're still in the midst of Tex Buana's hunt. <laughs> of course, he's a Texan. <laughs> mm. I'm offended. 
no, no, I'm not. But <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot of Texas stereotyping in here. But well, it's Americans stereotyping. It's white Americans stereotyping white Americans. I think we can live with that. Yeah. Um, he's not near as bad as some stereotypes. I mean, at least he's, well, he's wearing a cowboy, kind of wearing a cowboy-esque hat. He's not like just straight up dressed like a cowboy and shooting like some six shooters or something. So that's, that's the part that drives me crazy. Cause I'm like, I literally live in like right next door to Dallas and I've never seen or very rarely seen anybody with a cowboy hat or like a giant belt buckle or boots. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that might be more of more a thing of Texas's past. See, I, I stand by my statement: the most accurate portrayal of Texas you'll ever see on TV is King of the Hill, and that's mm. pretty much it. <laughs> so, old Tex wants to trap and catch furs for his daughter Nora's birthday gifts. And his big idea, he's going to recreate Noah's Ark. And it works somehow. Incredibly. In fact, not only does he build the Ark, he gets the animals on board by printing an advertising campaign about a pending storm. And he gets all of the animals he needs except for one. Naturally, the Pink Panther deciding that pink fur would look good in, in Nora's powder room. Pink fur! Now that's status! <laughs> he sets back out, and his assistant in this warns him that the Pink Panther is taboo. Which I means don't he care can... what... You go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, he's taboo, which means he can read tarot cards. <laughs> of course, Tex, <laughs> being a dumb American, re responds... I don't care what his name is. I'm going to get him. <laughs> now, now, I just want to briefly mention the assistant. He's also kind of a... I, don't, I was expecting a lot worse from this. Yeah. As far as stereotypes go, he's subtle. He's very subtle. Yeah, it's just a darker-skinned character. No more or less caricaturized than the little man or any of the other human characters we've seen in Pink Panther shorts to this point. He's just wearing a fez. It's a light accent. He's not played for comedy. He's not played as a coward. Well, well, he's not played as, I guess he's played a little cowardly, but that's the worst of it. Cause after he runs off, we don't see him again. I'd, I'd argue that's less cowardly and more that he's uh, smart. <laughs> yeah. Considering what what's about to happen, because the because the Pink Panther basically has his way with Tex. Boy, howdy! Doesn't help that Tex isn't the smartest. No, as as a matter of fact, the best demonstration of this is he does not realize when he is plummeting to his doom the first time. They, they set up this gag with an elevator being pulled up by a gorilla. And, uh, you know, first we see the panther go up. Then Tex comes up to it and the, the elevator comes back down. He comes up. We see it's being pulled up by a massive gorilla. And what's Tex's first inclination? He wants to measure this thing to see if it'll fit his living room. Yep. And, uh, and Pink Panther gives the gorilla a... 
uh, banana to make him drop Tex, and Tex's tape measure keeps going down. He thinks he's still sizing the gorilla, despite the fact he's falling. And even after he crashes into the ground, and I do mean into, he's a good three feet in a hole he created just from his impact, he he pulls himself up and says, Oh, that's one big gorilla. It's even Texas size bigger. He said something along that lines. Or even yeah, for Texas. Right. Uh, or, heck, when he accidentally shoots the Hornet instead of the Pink Panther, and his immediate response is, I didn't know these things buzz when you shoot them. It's a complete lack of common sense. <laughs> uh, that's a Texan for you. <laughs> mm. I can say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, just like I can tell jokes about New Yorkers and stubbornness. Yep. Oh, Texas can be pretty stubborn, too. Actually, um, I, that, that's why uh, one of the first things I got told when I first started working tech support is the worst combination you can get on a phone is a Texan and a New Yorker. <laughs> or New Yorker. It's <laughs> because... Seemingly, most Texans are talk kind of more on a slower pace, and New Yorkers talk on a faster pace. So that they're both stubborn, and they both get frustrated with each other's like pace of speech. Does that bode well for us? Uh, I've been told I talk pretty fast for someone who's in the southern area of the United States. Probably because I watch a lot of TV, so probably not. Okay, <laughs> and I'm also have a a lot of patience as people have commonly pointed out to me <laughs> so after some business with the rope bridge to the ark one of which causes Tex to fall just like Wiley e. Coyote in one of the uh, the Patty Freeling Warner cartoons naturally it soon comes that it's raining and Tex realizes oh my Stars, it worked! I'm gonna drown! No! And so he calls out to the panther, I'll let all your animals free if you just give me the ark back! <laughs> it's a deal. And yep. one stampede later, Tex is safe, as far as he knows, in the ark, believing all the other animals are just gonna drown while he's gonna be high and dry. Of course, not everything is as it seems. Nope. It is an elephant that the Pink Panther had spraying water all over the area. That's one strong, strong nostrils. Also kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if Tex realized it, I think he probably would have said that, You think that might be funny, but it's not. <laughs> Childish humor. I know. But one of us was going to go there. It may as well have been me. <laughs> and it ends with uh, something you get very rarely. The panther actually speaks. Why can't man be more like animals? Yes, indeed. According to my research, though I kind of call this into question because I can recall at least one more, the panther only speaks twice in the theatrical run. And who's supplying that voice but impressionist Rich Little? And he does a really good job. I kind of feel like that fits like how I would imagine the Panther to sound. Yes, very debonair. 
Which also, I want to mention, I love his like his walk cycle in this short. It's got that. It's like that nice little hop he's got in like not quite a skip, but a little bit of like a hop in his like walk cycle is always really nice. Indeed, indeed. So, anything else about Pink Sync we want to go over? Uh, not particularly. I, I do wonder if when they animated the, the scene of Tex following Fritz Freeling was just like, ah, oh, just like old times. <laughs> Possibly. I, I, I still say it does feel weird that they have as much speech as this short does in a Pink Panther short. Though I could mention a weirder example of Panther talking, but we might mention that later. Yeah. We will definitely be revisiting the, this series down the line. Probably way down the line. But we got <laughs> one left for today. The seventh chronological cartoon in the production order, Pink Finger. You can guess what they're parodying just by that name. Good old James Bond and spy movies. Yep. And Paul Fries is back doing his doing one of his voices he would commonly do for snooty, sophisticated-sounding British types. Uh, yeah, whenever I heard the narrator, I was instantly like, oh, hey, it's the commissioner from George of the Jungle. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the exact same voice. Also, uh, any of these spies here grumbling, it's like, oh, of course Paul Fries is going to do that, because if you need something sounding remotely Russian, he's the guy you hire. <laughs> Very much so. Now... Pinkfinger is one I picked not just because of the Paul Freese connection, but it also establishes a second formula that they would use going forward, where the panther is not the antagonizer, but the one being antagonized, and not necessarily by opposing people, but just cruel fate or bad luck. I will say that part of this short feels a little less like a typical Pink Panther short and almost feels like an, an, an one of the Inspector shorts. Could be. Uh, they were probably just getting ready to start the the production of the Inspector around this point in time. Um, but yeah, it, it, is, it is interesting. It is an interesting change of pace of seeing him be on the receiving end for once. Hmm. Some people just aren't cut out to be a spy, I guess. No. Certainly not the likes of me. <laughs> I, 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 give me a comfortable desk job any day of the week. Every day of the week, in fact. And twice on Sunday. But one of the gags in this cartoon is another example of putting an exclamation point on the expected gag. Because uh, one of the spies decides to get proactive and lure the Pink Panther into a trap. Namely, a pit full of alligators. Back, back! You will get your taste of flesh. Pink <laughs> flesh! <laughs> and not the bad. Pink Panther enters in and just nonchalantly, not even aware, walks on the side of the rug. The spy decides, oh no, you're going in, and lifts up the Pink Panther and does not drop him in time, and putting him it- in the pit. And as you would think in a, most cartoons, like, the, the bad guy would fall into the pit, and, like, the hero, in this case Pink Panther, would just walk off. But no! A gator, one of the alligators, jumps out of the pit and pushes the panther into the pit with them. Yeah, oh, so I laughed know. so much at that. That was such good timing. Yeah, so you get 
two people escaping, which is very... Again, it's one of those things you would not expect a B or C tier studio to come up with. Yeah, it's a really... That was a really good gag, and the timing on it was really good, because it was like right when you thought Panther was just going to walk off. Nope, here comes the gator! (laughs) Which, by the way, that gator can really jump. He needs to be in freaking basketball. Oh, no kidding. If, if he if that was if that gator was in the swamp, he'd give Wally Gator a, a shot at being top operator. Little known fact, this is the original scene of Vector the Crocodile. <laughs> For Sega. But as as this goes on, progressively the spy work keeps getting more and more dangerous for the Panther. I mean, first, it's dealing with some gunshots, like where he winds up looking at a password that's actually just blast him spelled excuse me, backwards. But progressively, <laughs> more and more explosions become involved. One of which took out a poor telegraph station. Yeah, at this point, the Panther's on the Orient Express because, of course, he'd be in a spy cartoon. I also like how every spy just wears the exact same black trench coat and hat. <laughs> it's like, if, if every spy dressed like this, I don't think like we'd have that hard of a time finding them. Yep, color-coded for your convenience, folks. But it's bombs and more bombs and more bombs. And eventually the Panther's just back in the city. Oh, well, wait, no, it's worth mentioning oh. that the last explosion, he actually did get to capture a spy. Oh, true, true. Which we got to see the Pink Panther with a pistol, which also seems weird. <laughs> very. Also, I think this is one of the first times we see the Panther wearing very much in the way of clothing. Because he's got oh. a trench coat and hat on. Oh, I just, I, I forgot to mention something about the start of this that I like. Uh, one of the things I do like about the uh, Pink Panther cartoons is that is how well they pantomime in it and stuff. And there's like the, uh, like in the intro, when the, the narrator is trying to tell him that he could make a good spy. And he just waves his hands like, you know, and he doesn't say anything, but it's like, everything is conveyed just in, you know, the gesture. And it's, it's really well done. Yeah. It's why we uh, had a hard time coming up with an opening gag for this episode that's centered around the pink Panther because, uh, you can't do pantomime in an audio-only format. Timmy waves his arms all over the place, but nobody knows because they can't see it. Yeah, basically. Actually, technically, I'm just playing with a slinky while I talk. It's one of the weird things they do to... It's one of the weird things they do to sometimes handle my ADD. <laughs> Whatever works. So eventually the pan. Oh, oh I was go just going to say, I, I do this whenever I take calls for work, too. So. That beats my occasional restless leg syndrome. Oh, I get that, too. So eventually, a fed up panther is back in the city, and he actually encounters the narrator. Who's locked in a pit with, I assume, crocodiles. <laughs> actually, the, he states it's a lion. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Uh, I, we don't know he could be lying. Oh, true, true. It is a distinct possibility. But upon learning who it is, 
The panther just slams the door shut and walks back off. While giving a very deceivious smile to the audience. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you got me into this. I'm getting out of it. Besides, I, I'm sure he's friends with the lion. I mean, they're fellow big cats. Yeah, true. They're, they're not exactly competing. They're not exactly eat, trying to eat each other. They're high enough on the food chain, respectively, that they're mostly going to be competing for food rather than uh, going after go, trying to eat one another. He's just like, enjoy Mufasa. He <laughs> Hope he's tasty. So, anything else we want to discuss about Pinkfinger? No, it's a really good. It was really good short. Like I said, it feels more like one of the Inspector shorts, but it's still really good. It's really enjoyable and a nice change of pace compared to the other three we watched. Indeed. Now, from this point on, Depate Freeling was off to the races, not only creating animated shorts for United Artists and Warner Brothers, but they were going to branch off into television with projects like Super 6, Super President, Bailey's Comet, Here Comes the Grump, and Baggy Pants and the Nitwits. Ah, oh, you didn't mention my favorite, which is the Hound Cats. Oh, okay. That's... That one's actually really cool. Well, now we just did. <laughs> it's kind of like Mission Impossible, except in the Wild West. So lots of crazy Rube Goldberg devices for simple things. Oh, nice. Now, eventually, the company would be purchased by Marvel Comics and be renamed Marvel Productions, and David DePate would stay on with the company, where they would produce tie-ins with comic books and tie-ins to toy lines, which would be one of the predominant features of the 1980s. Yeah, and now almost, uh, let's see, now a good portion of, uh, I think, the Patty Freeling stuff that isn't like the Pink Panther, I think is technically owned by Disney. But... Right, since, since they uh, picked since they picked up a lot of the Marvel stuff, uh, to my knowledge, the exceptions include uh, the shorts for United Artists and Warner Brothers, and one of the latter-day uh, productions... Oh wait, I'm I'm, think, I'm thinking of Ruby Spears for that one. Oh. Never mind. Uh, however, I don't. I, I've seemingly the lawyers and whatnot at Disney aren't too aware of everything they own because seemingly a couple of the uh, the Patty Freeling shows have fallen into uh, uh, have fallen into uh, um, public, public domain. domain? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Houndcats is supposedly in public domain. Because they never got the license, the uh, copyright renewed on it. Interesting. Let's see, so, oops. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. If you want to make yourself a reboot of the Hound Cats, y'all can do it. Okay. Do we want to mention, make a brief mention of the TV stuff that would follow the Pink Panther in the eighties, nineties, and two thousands? I think those merit their own episodes. I was just meaning like a rough little short statement. Well, in that case, go for it. Uh, well, in the 80s, Hanna-Barbera made a cartoon that brought the Pink Panther back called Pink Panther and Sons, where the Pink Panther now has two kids. And uh, the kids talk, and he still doesn't. They they keep him quiet. And I, I remember right, I think uh, Fritz Freeling worked on this show, too, because they definitely make an effort to kind of keep to the art style of the original shorts the best they can with the uh, TV Hanna-Barbera budget. And um, it's actually neat. Uh, Pink Panther, despite being the title character, feels more like a side character, and it's more about his kids. 
But it is neat that they keep him silent and doing pantomime throughout everything. And like his kids just kind of understand him. Uh, we never find out who the mother is, but you know, that happens. It That's seems. par for the course. Other After that, we in the 90s, another attempt was to bring the Pink Panther back. I don't remember what exact studio was responsible for this, other than MGM had some sort of a hand in it. And now the Pink Panther talks, and he's voiced by Matt Frewer, best known as uh, Max Hedrum. And That's it's an not odd very fit. good. And it's not very good. I've actually tried watching him recently, and one, the voice they gave the Panther is really, really annoying. So it's like, God, I liked him better when he was mute. And mm. they kind of just follow a lot of very, very stock cartoon plots. Um, I will give it credit. It does try to... It kind of tries to replicate the art style, but not quite. Like, a lot of the characters... Some of the character designs feel like they are, but everything else still doesn't because it's not like they don't have the minimalistic backgrounds or anything. Those feel like normal cartoon backgrounds. And they try to fit references in. Like I remember there was a episode where they're in the jungle and they had the aardvark as the Tarzan XB for whatever reason. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, that's weird, but okay. <laughs> now I'm wondering how Jackie Mason would sound doing a Tarzan yell. But uh, it, it's, it's not very good from what I've seen. Um, I, I would like someday I need to give it a more in-depth one because you can actually find episodes of it online on the official Pink Panther YouTube channel. Yes, you can find bunches of Pink Panther stuff on the official channel for free. And we're, we're talking the classic theatrical shorts. We're talking Pink Panther and Sons. We're talking the 90s reboot and the 2000s reboot. Which I was just going to get to. Uh, the 2000s reboot, which was Pink Panther and Pals, I actually... Thought was pretty good, uh, surprisingly. Uh, it definitely, while I don't think the the visuals kind of try to get the, the the style, but and they made Panther kind of younger looking, like he looks like a young adult kind of. Or yeah, it it feels like they they definitely feel writing wise like they are trying their best to have the same tone and feel of the original shorts and. Well, I don't think they entirely hit the mark, it is a very good effort, and I feel like these are actually really enjoyable. Plus, they have uh, they made new Ant and Aardvark shorts, which is also really cool. Yes, and Ant and the Aardvark is on the immediate to-do list, because I really enjoyed those two. I, I like that they uh, kept the Aardvark's voice they pretty much did gave him the same voice, uh, you know, as somebody impersonating him, of course. But right, the, gave the Jackie like, Mason impression. Yeah, gave him the same voice in the new show, but for whatever reason, the ant gets a completely different voice. I don't remember who it was. I think it was uh, it was Kel. Oh, Kel. Yeah, that's right. I, was, <laughs> I got the wrong one. <laughs> I was like, but yeah, uh, and it was just like that's. <laughs> it's like okay, that's weird. <laughs> I mean, I guess you get a popular star at the time instead of someone imitating James Dean, but it's it's still weird. <laughs> so, over 50 years later, is the Pink Panther still the coolest cat in the room? He, he's pretty... He, he, I will say the shorts hold up really well. I also also amused that one of the things that caught my eye rewatching this is like, wow, he smokes a lot. <laughs> 
Oh goodness, yeah. It's like that would never happen now. Right. But yeah, I do agree. These shorts hold up incredibly well. I mean, pantomime is there's a reason that was one of the earliest forms of uh, of theatrical comedy, not not just because there was a lack of sound, but because you had you could convey so much with good body language, good posture, good facial expressions, and DePatty Freeling knew how to do it. And as a result, they had the world's most famous insulation salesman. <laughs> yes, I remember that. I actually forgot that he was a longtime advertisement for that, but is he yep, still? Owen's Cunning. Owen's Corning, rather. Is is that company still around or Yes they are. I'm looking right here. They still have it available. It still has the Pink Panther? And he's still on the packaging. Nice. What kind of contract did they sign? (laughs) Till the end of time. (laughs) Yeah, just like Universal signed with Marvel for rides and attractions east of the Mississippi. No, I'm not bitter. Disney's like, one of these days, they'll be ours. But on that note, I think we should uh, bid our audience farewell. I'm James Irish. Actually, before I I sign out, I just want to say I have this, after saying that, I just had this great image of Mickey, evil Mickey going, Ha ha, first Fox, next Universal! I'm sorry. (laughs) I wouldn't put it past him. Sadly, no. Uh, Anyways, and I am Pembroke W. Corgi. And until next time, we're off to restock the breakfast cereal. Yeah. The opinion changed to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Sean Michael Smith.